Hello and welcome. You are listening to Embodied Curiosity. In this show, we will explore self-compassion and holistic health through the lens of embodiment, intuition, nature connection, and neuroscience. I'm your host, Michaela, and I'm so excited for you to join me. Hey, welcome back. I have been rereading one of my favorite books, Women Who Run With the Wolves by Clarissa Pinkola Estes. This book has been so impactful in my life, and I wanted to share my thoughts and insights as I read through each chapter. This is set up sort of like a virtual book group, so feel free to get a copy of the book and follow along with me. I also uploaded video versions of these episodes on my YouTube channel. You can find my channel by just searching my name, Michaela Rands, or you can click the link in the description. I hope you gain some insights as I share my process with the stories in this powerful little book. Hey, okay, let's get this started. My name is Michaela and I'm back for another chapter summary of Women Who Run With The Wolves. Today I'm going to be talking about chapter 14. The name of the chapter is La Selva Subterranea Initiation in the Underground Forest. First, I want to share that earlier today I actually recorded this video. I recorded an hour of me talking about this chapter. And after I was finished recording, I went to watch and I realized that none of the sound was recorded. I was actually trying out a new pair of Bluetooth mics and I had tested them and tested them. And it seems that just as I started recording, the receiver mic ran out of battery because it just stopped working. And as you can imagine, I was super bummed and I was about to just throw this all out (laughs) and not do this chapter because it's not only a really huge and dense chapter, but already having processed it all verbally, I feel like it might be a challenge for me to redo this. But I realized the silver lining was that it was an hour long. And so what I'm going to try to do with today's video is to make it a little more concise if possible. Chapter 14 is one of the last chapters in the book, and it's a really, really important one. It kind of, in a way, summarizes the whole book, and that's why it's so long and so intense. And honestly, it's one of the hardest chapters to read because she goes in so much depth into every detail of the story that's told. She brings out so many metaphors and relates this story back to all the other stories. And as usual, her analysis is very poetic and honestly sometimes hard to understand. Now, I've heard that as a critique to this book. I've recommended this book to a few people who've said, oh, I tried to read that and it was not really my style or it was too dense or too intense. And this chapter is one of the ones that reminds me of that feeling. Um, But what I always remember to do with this book that I think I've said before in past videos is if I find myself trying really hard with my logical, rational brain to understand everything she's saying, to understand the story and to understand the analysis in a logical or rational way, then I'm probably going to have a hard time. But instead, if I just allow the words to enter my ears, so to speak, and allow my psyche to just absorb whatever it is that it's going to absorb, I find that there is still so much medicine in these stories and these chapters. And even in this one, there was several times where I teared up and I felt like even though I don't even understand what it was about, it was conjuring up so much emotion in me and so much of a feeling of truth. 
So again, I think I've said this before, but I recommend if you do want to try and read this book to not try so hard to make sure you understand every paragraph and reread it and reread it, but just try and read through and find the parts that do make sense and that do resonate and just trust the process. I will say that after doing these chapter summaries more consistently over the last couple weeks, I have been really feeling the power of this book and the impact it makes on my life. And when I take time away from this book, I feel differently. And I feel like the book helps me see the world from a new perspective. It helps me see every single little struggle that I deal with on the day-to-day as part of the larger picture of my life. It helps me see that I'm not alone in the struggles that I go through. And it reminds me that these struggles are there to teach me and guide me. And that I always have access to inner, deeper, more spiritual parts of myself that will guide me through this process. So I can confidently say that this book is important medicine for me, and it may be for you too. But if you're feeling unsure, I wouldn't start with chapter 14. You can watch this video and see if you can get any insights out of my interpretations. But just so you know, I am just putting this through my own lens and I'm probably missing a ton of details in this summary. Okay, let's talk about the chapter. So this chapter is about a story called The Handless Maiden. And she starts this chapter with a really beautiful quote. If a story is seed, then we are its soil. Just hearing the story allows us to experience it as though we ourselves were the heroine who either falters or wins out in the end. If we hear a story about a wolf, then afterward we rove about and know like a wolf for a time. If we hear a story about a dove finding her young at last, then for a time after something moves behind our own feathered breasts. If it be a story of wresting the sacred pearl from beneath the claw of the ninth dragon, we feel exhausted afterward and satisfied. In a very real way, we are imprinted with knowing just by listening to the tale. So that said, in my video today, I'm just going to do a really quick overview of the story, but I actually think this is one of the few stories that is really worth reading. And just as she's described, using it as a seed and planting yourself in the story. She says, customarily, I teach this tale over seven nights time, and sometimes, depending on the listeners, over seven weeks, and occasionally seven months time, spending one night, week, or month each labor of the story. And there is a reason for this. Unlike other tales we have looked at in this work that speak to a specific task or a specific learning taking place over a few days or weeks time, The Handless Maiden covers a many years long journey, the journey of a woman's entire lifetime. So you may be starting to see why I said this chapter is one of the harder ones and one of the more dense ones is because it covers so much ground. It literally covers the entire life of a woman. So let me get into the summary. A girl whose father makes a deal with the devil, gets her hands chopped off, and wanders the forest hungry and filthy. She comes upon a royal orchard, and there she meets a king who professes his love to her and vows to care for her. He makes her a pair of silver hands. They marry, and the girl gets pregnant. While the king is away on a trip, the baby is born. In the process of sending messages back and forth between the king and the maiden, the devil intercepts the messages and tricks the girl into thinking that the king wants her and her baby killed. With the help of the king mother, the girl is sent away deep into the forest to hide from the king. On his return, the king finds out what has happened and vows to search for her until he finds her. After seven long years of the girl hiding and the king searching, the girl's hands have grown back and the king finally finds his queen. They have a second wedding and many more children. 
I almost want to laugh at how concise that is compared to the actual story, but that's the basic gist. Now, in reflecting on how to break down this story and the analysis in this chapter, I think the easiest thing for me to do would be to go through each of the seven stages that she describes and try and bring up whatever important symbols she described in each section. So the first stage of the story is the bargain without knowing. In the story, this is when the girl's father makes a deal with the devil, which ultimately leads to the girl's hands being cut off. And it all starts because the father in the story is actually out of work. The devil comes out of the forest as a stranger and promises the father all the riches he could ever imagine in exchange for what is behind the mill. And as the father looked over at the mill, all he saw behind the mill was an apple tree. But in fact, his daughter was behind the mill sweeping. He didn't know that, so he agreed to the bargain. But then later he discovered that he had actually bargained his daughter. Then in the story, the devil comes back three years later to get the daughter, but she has cleansed herself and worn her most pure white dress. She even draws a circle of white chalk around her to protect her, and it actually works. The devil can't get to her. So the devil demands that she not bathe or clean herself, and when he comes back, he still can't get to her because she is crying on her hands, and her hands are just as clean as before because of the tears. In his rage, he demands that the father cuts off the young girl's hands so that she cannot cry on them anymore. The devil returns again, and she is crying on these stumps of hands, and still he cannot get to her, so the devil runs off upset. This part of the story is hard to bear because the father has to cut off his daughter's hands. But if he doesn't, the devil threatens to kill everything. But it all started with the bargain the father made, not knowing he was making that kind of bargain. As women, we must ask ourselves here at the beginning, what poor bargain does every woman make? Though we might respond with different answers on different days, there is one answer that is constant to all women's lives. Though we hate to admit it over and over again, the poorest bargain of our lives is the one we make when we forfeit our deep knowing life for one that is far more frail. When we give up our teeth, our claws, our scents, our scent. When we surrender our wilder natures for a promise of something that seems rich, but turns out to be hollow instead. So as with all the stories, this bargain with the devil is really just a metaphor for making a choice in your life. Perhaps a choice that seems to make your life easier, but actually makes your life harder. Or a choice where you choose comfort or perhaps wealth or some perceived notion of success in exchange for something that your soul really longs for or something that really lights you up. There is a sliver of good news though. The making of this awful bargain is a matter of enormous and meaningful paradox. Even though choosing poorly could be seen as a pathologically self-destructive act, it far more often turns into a watershed event that brings vast opportunity to redevelop the power of the instinctive nature. In this respect, though there is loss and sadness, the poor bargain, like birth and death, constitutes a rather utilitarian step off the cliff planned by the self in order to bring a woman deep into her wildness. So already there's a slight promise of hope that actually this is just the beginning of the journey. And even though this decision or this bargain seems like a disaster right now, in a way we will see that it is a gift because it forces us into a more spiritual path or in other words, into the underworld. This poor bargain is an initiation of sorts. Another important aspect of this first stage is the characters of the father and mother. The father is a miller, but he is out of work, which means the mill is not working. So that in itself is a symbol of the psyche not milling, not processing the information that's coming in. 
And like all the stories in this book, the father is just an aspect of a woman's psyche. And all the characters in the story are all within one woman's psyche. The father in this case is sort of like the animus character that we talked about in previous chapters. That masculine aspect that is supposed to be kind of holding that structure and getting things done. But in this case, he is not working. And he seems to be wanting an easy way out. And the devil presents this easy way out by promising riches. But that is when the bad bargain is made. In this case, the woman that this whole story is about is really looking for kind of an easy way out, maybe a comfortable life. But unfortunately, things aren't always as they seem. Which brings us to the second stage, the dismemberment. In this stage, this is when she gets her hands cut off. And as I just described, before getting her hands cut off, she cries and cries. And she talks a little bit in this section about how important crying is and how in some ways we don't do it enough. Something in this crying keeps the predator away, keeps away unhealthy desire or gain that will ruin her. Tears are part of the mending of rips in the psyche where energy has leaked and leaked away. The matter is serious, but the worst does not occur. Our light is not stolen, for tears make us conscious. There is no chance to go back to sleep when one is weeping. And as you can see, even though the tears are what makes her get her hands cut off, the tears ultimately save her from getting taken completely. There's also powerful symbolism in the hands and getting your hands cut off. I mean, I can even just imagine how terrible that would be thinking about not having hands. Like there's so much you can do with hands. You can touch things, you can pick things up, you can tinker, you can craft, you can hold someone's hand, you can touch someone's face. The hands give so much feeling and so much connection when we say a woman's hands are cut off, we mean she is bound away from self-comfort, from immediate self-healing. It is a very sad matter to lose your hands. And even though this is just a metaphor, that loss of feeling and that loss of ability that the hands give is the beginning of a really challenging initiation. Our lives as we once knew them are over. We are desirous of being alone, perhaps being left alone. We can no longer rely on the fatherly dominant culture. We are in the midst of learning our real lives for the first time. We go on. And she says, the psychic body has lost its precious hands. It is true. But the rest of the psyche will compensate for the loss. We still have feet that know the way, a soul mind with which to see far, breasts and belly to sense with. The third stage is the wandering. And this is where she decides to go off on her own. Before she leaves, both of her parents, who are very distraught and feel terrible about this poor bargain that they made, they offer to care for their daughter for the rest of her life, feed her, keep her comfortable, but she declines and decides to go just be a beggar and wander. It's as if she realized that no matter how much they would try, they can't protect her. Women in this stage often begin to feel both desperate and adamant to go on this inward journey, no matter what. And so they do. As they leave one life for another, one stage of life for another, or sometimes even one lover for no other lover than themselves. Leaving a relationship or the home of one's parents, leaving behind outmodeled values, becoming one's own person, and sometimes driving deep into the wildlands because one just must. All of these are the fortune of the descent. And so with that, the young maiden says goodbye to her young mother and father, probably forever, and heads off into the forest, being quietly led by the wild soul. Eventually, she is very hungry and very dirty, and she comes upon a royal orchard. She sees the fruit in the orchard and longs to eat it, for she has not eaten in days. A spirit in white appears and helps her into the orchard by draining the moat. She walks into the orchard and one of the trees bends down a branch and offers her a pear. This is all happening in the dark of night, 
but the gardener is in the orchard and sees this happen. The next day, the king comes to check on his orchard, and the gardener tells him what has happened. So the king decides to bring his magician, and the three men stay and watch to see if the spirit in white and the handless woman come back. And they do, and the same thing happens. The spirit in white drains the moat, and the handless maiden walks in and eats another pear. So this wandering is getting a little bit more interesting, which brings us to the fourth stage, finding love in the underworld. So in the beginning of the story, we had this animus masculine character that was the father that made the poor bargain. Now enters three male figures that are now going to represent a new inner masculine for the psyche. We have the gardener, the king, and the magician, and they are three mature personifications of the archetypal masculine. They correspond to the sacred trinity of the feminine personified by the maiden, mother, and crone. She goes into great depth in this part of the chapter into what each of those archetypes mean. What happens next is the magician goes to talk to the handless maiden and ask her, is she from this world or from another world? And the handless maiden answers that she is from both. At hearing this, the king rushes to her side and kneels and vows his love to her, vows to protect her and care for her. The king takes one look at the maiden and immediately, without faint of heart or doubt, loves her as his own. He recognizes her as his own, not in spite of her handless, wildish wandering state, but because of it. So in a way, this inner masculine aspect of the psyche has a strong desire to protect this maiden character, especially because she's handless and helpless. So they actually go off and get married and he has a pair of silver hands made for her. Now, things seem to be going pretty well in this story. She has found someone to care for her. She has new hands, but things are about to get interesting again. The next stage, the fifth stage, is called the harrowing of the soul. In this part of the story, the maiden actually becomes pregnant with the king's child. But as she's pregnant, the king has to go away on a trip. When the child is born, the maiden sends a messenger to tell the king of the great news. And this is where the devil comes back in. The messenger actually falls asleep and somehow the devil is able to change the message to say that the child was born, but it was born half dog. And the king at getting this message is horrified but he sends back his love. And again, the messenger falls asleep and the devil changes the message to be an angry message. And back and forth they go until finally the message arrives to the maiden that the mother of the king is supposed to kill the maiden and her child. Of course, the king did not send this, but that is what the devil changed the message to. Fortunately, the king's mother, who is being instructed to kill the maiden and her child, know this is not the right way to go. So she bundles them up and sends them off to hide in the forest. The king's mother is a really important aspect of this story because she represents the wild woman archetype. She is the wild mother. She is the knower, the seer. So when all of these messages get jumbled up, she is the one that knows this something isn't right. Even just the mixed messages that are happening are symbolic for something that happens deeper in the soul. These are the means by which the predator changes the life-giving messages between the soul and spirit into death-dealing messages that cut our hearts and cause shame, and even more importantly, inhibit us from taking rightful action. She goes ahead and describes lots of things those messages could show up as in your psyche. The ones that I'm remembering that resonated the most are just that self-critical voice and also sort of the warring voices in your head. I am good, I am not so good, my work is deep work, my work is silly, I am making a difference, I'm not getting anywhere, I am brave, I am a coward, I am knowing, I ought to be ashamed of myself. These are just examples of what these messages can sound like when the devil is at work in your psyche, basically trying to confuse you and exhaust you. 
but luckily the wild mother knows better. Another important part of this section is the birth, the birth of the child, which she calls the soul child. To give birth is the psychic equivalent of becoming oneself, oneself, meaning an undivided psyche. Before the birth of new life in the underworld, a woman is likely to think all parts and personalities within her are rather like a hodgepodge of vagrants who wander in and out of her life. In the underworld birth, a woman learns that anything that brushes by her is a part of her. Sometimes this differentiation of all the aspects of the psyche is hard to do, especially with the tendencies and urges we find repulsive. The challenge of loving, unappealing aspects of ourselves is as much of an endeavor as any heroine has ever undertaken. Sometimes we are afraid that to identify more than one self within the psyche might mean that we are psychotic. While it is true that people with a psychotic disorder also experience many selves, identifying with or against them quite vividly, a person with no psychotic disorder holds all the inner selves in an orderly and rational manner. They are put to good use, the person grows and thrives, and for the majority of women, mothering and raising the internal selves is a creative work, a way of knowledge, not a reason for becoming unnerved. And I highlighted that whole section because it really resonated with me. And if this topic is of interest to you, I definitely recommend looking into parts work or internal family systems or any kind of psychological model that addresses this concept of being many selves in one and that healing is about integrating those selves, even and especially the shadow aspects. So she uses the symbol of birth, of the union of the masculine and feminine inside of the soul to unify and integrate all the different parts of ourselves, even the ones that seem very different and that may not agree. And that brings us to the sixth stage, the realm of the wild woman. So this is after the king's mother sends the maiden and her child deep into the forest. Though this episode is briefly attended to in the tale, it is truly the longest both in time past and in terms of bringing the task to fruition. The maiden has wandered again and comes home, so to speak, for seven years. So in the tale, there isn't really much said about these seven years and what happens there. The only important aspect is that her hands grow back during that time. She is living in the forest in an inn, she is protected and cared for, and her child is able to grow up unharmed. Meanwhile, the king is desperate to find her and his child. He goes on his own seven-year initiation journey where now he is hungry and dying and dirty until finally he finds her. This seven-year period is important and symbolic. And in this part of the chapter, she brings up a really interesting concept that perhaps our life is cut into these seven-year chunks or phases, so to speak. For example, from 0 to 7, 7 to 14, 14 to 21, and so on. Each of these phases having a different important developmental or rite of passage journey that the woman goes through. She has them written all out in this chapter, so I'm not going to read them all, but I found that to be a really interesting way of thinking about it in cycles of seven and even thinking about where I am in that cycle and that perhaps this entire story is just showing a storyline that could potentially fit within those seven years and kind of repeats over and over again in different intensity levels, I guess. And during this time, her hands grow back. So she is able to hide away for a time, maybe have some period of introversion. I'm sure it doesn't have to be seven years, but it's a time when a woman is really coming home to herself and really getting connected to her feminine, deeper aspects. During this time, she is not with her husband, which means that newfound animus character that loves her and wants to protect her and help her 
is nowhere to be found. So maybe this is the time when a lot of her ideas and dreams are being incubated. And the next stage is when they get reunited. The seventh stage is the wild bride and the bridegroom. And this is a joyous stage indeed. This is when the king actually finally finds his bride and they celebrate. At first, he doesn't even recognize her because her hands had grown back and because she looks so different. Here at the end, the woman who has made the sustained descent. Here at the end, the woman who has made this sustained descent has melded together a sturdy quaternity of spiritual powers, the kingly animus, the child self, the old wild mother, and the initiated maiden. She has been washed and purified many times. Her ego's desire for the safe life is no longer lead dog. Now this quaternity leads the psyche. Here, the maiden is no longer the woman the king married, no longer the frail, wandering soul. Now she is initiated. Now she knows her woman's ways in all matters. Now she is wizened with the stories and counsel of the old wild mother. She has hands. And like I said, the king has been on his own journey of initiation and redevelopment. He is learning his place in things, so to speak. And again, bringing it back, this is all part of our own psyche. So when I read this part, I was thinking to myself, this is the part where everything the woman has been working on and cultivating and seeking deep in her spiritual journey, this is the time when the animus can come in and help her formulate that and structure that into something that she can share with the outside world. And because the king has been on his own journey, he is more able to share and hold the container for that feminine energy. That's at least my interpretation of it. And this could be the end of someone's life, but again, it could be the end of these seven-year cycles. But it must feel good to be so integrated and initiated after so much suffering. Here at the last, let us rest now and look over this lush, panorama of woman's initiation and its tasks. Once we have been through the cycle, we can choose any or all of the tasks to renew our lives at any time for any reason. And she lists out some, so I'll read them. To leave the old parents of the psyche, descend to the psychic land unknown, while depending on the goodwill or whomever we may meet along the way. To bind the wounds inflicted by the poor bargain we made somewhere in our lives to wander psychically hungry and trust nature to feed us, to find the wild mother and her sucker, to make contact with the sheltering animus of the underworld, to converse with the magician, to behold the ancient orchards of the feminine, to incubate and give birth to the spiritual child self, to bear being misunderstood, to be severed again and again from love, to be made sooty, muddy, and dirty, to stay in the realm of the woods people for seven years till the child is the age of reason, to wait, to regenerate the inner sight, inner knowing, inner healing of the hands, to continue onward even though one has lost all, to retrace and grasp her childhood, girlhood, and womanhood, to reform her animus as a wild and native force to love him and he her and finally to consummate the wild marriage of the presence of the old wild mother and the new child self and that is how she ended the chapter with all of those different ideas of how to begin this initiation and initiated we will be whether we like it or not so there it is. I did my best to summarize all of the most important parts of that chapter. Again, if any of that interested you, you can just find that section and reread it for yourself. But I hope that helped you see the bigger picture. The questions I want to share today are actually directly from the chapter. As she described, she uses this chapter often in circles of women to really discuss some of these issues together. So these are some of the questions that struck me. Number one, how does one live in the topside world and the underworld at the same time and on a day-to-day -day basis? Number two, 
What does one have to do to come down into the underworld on one's own? Number three, what spontaneous help have you received from the instinctive nature during such a time? And I think I've sprinkled a lot of my insights throughout this chapter summary, so I think I'll just leave it at that. But I'll put those questions down in the comments below and feel free to share whatever answers come up for you. I'm super grateful that you've made it this far and listened to this whole video or podcast. Thank you for being here and for doing this work and for being my witness on my journey of sharing. Thank you for listening to Embodied Curiosity. I hope you picked up some valuable insights to inspire you to stay curious and embodied.